Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn over to Galatians chapter 4. And you should be happy. I'm only going to talk about three verses today. But I'm going to go slow. I uh, came across a website called GetResponse.com. Thought it was kind of interesting. I just want to read what they say in their first two paragraphs to you. Basically, it's a company that's all about if you want. I mean, does anybody in here? Don't you go crazy getting the emails from like a million places? I don't know how many times I have to go spam, 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 get rid, you know, it's crazy. Well, this is a whole company that figures out the best time to send stuff to you so you might actually read it, okay? I mean, there's, there's a whole industry around this. So I just, just want to read the opening paragraph to you. Um, th- what they have out there, then, is this program. It's called Perfect Timing. Here it is. With Perfect Timing... We know the optimal hour of the day when your subscriber is most likely to open and click your emails. We will wait from zero to 23 hours before delivering your email to each subscriber individually to make sure that the delivery occurs exactly during that perfect timing slot for every person on your list. To activate it, turn on perfect timing in the summary step of creating a newsletter. Example, Sue interacts with her email mostly in the evening. GetResponse has calculated Sue's perfect time window to be between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. GetResponse predicts that that's when she's most likely to open emails and click on the links. With perfect timing off, you may send her an email at 9 a.m. and Sue will be buried with 10 hours of emails by the time she checks her box at 7 p.m. at night. Or you could send her an email at 11 p.m. when she's asleep. But with perfect timing on, GetResponse will deliver your email to Sue between 7 and 8 p.m., dramatically increasing the chance she will open your email, read it, and click through it. So, I don't know what your optimal time is, but somebody out there does. Perfect timing. If we can do it on a computer, don't you think God can do it with history? We come to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to find out that Christmas was God's perfect timing. And I want to just unpack three things with you today. First of all, when did it happen? What exactly happened? And why did it happen? Just three very simple questions. We'll answer them and then go out and have something to eat. When did Christmas happen? Historically, listen to what Galatians 4 verse 4 says. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. The Bible says, but when, and I'm reading from the NIV here, but when the set time had fully come. Literally, it says, when the fullness of time had occurred. Which means Christmas was not too early 
and Christmas was not too late. It was exactly when it was supposed to happen. Paul, earlier in chapters 3 of this chapter, talks about some of those historical events. And I want to go back even beyond that, but I want you to think about this. God creates a perfect world. And because of Adam and Eve, our ultimate mother and father, the entire world is plunged into sin. And one thing I know about everybody in here, I know about, I don't know, I may not know your specific history. You know what I know about you? The Bible says you're a sinner. And that your theme verse is, I'll have it my way. You know, I mean, you know, you just, you just kind of gravitate to yourself. Life is about us. doesn't mean you don't do nice things to other people. Yeah, I get all that. But at the end of the day, life kind of gravitates around Doug for me. And you for you. With all the other nice things you may do. The nice amenities. And and as you read through the Bible's storyline, what you'll find is whenever mankind places himself as center stage, which is the neutral response, there's catastrophes. There's a world that's going to awry, and God has to bring a flood. And later, there's, there's men come together again, and they try to build this tower to heaven itself so they can exclude God. Who needs God? We can be God. And again, God disperses them. And, and, and you begin to get into the sense of there's no hope. Every time mankind tries to do it their way, it goes awry. And God chooses a man by the name of Abraham. Takes him from one locale, brings him to another locale. And he makes a promise to him and he says, through you. Nations, not just Israel, but all nations will be blessed. I mean, the guy doesn't even have a kid yet, and he's too old. But God works supernaturally. Before you know it, there's an entire nation. And that nation is delivered in a miraculous way out of Egypt. And as they come into the promised land, you're thinking like, yeah, finally. Do you know what happens? That nation says, we'll have it our way. And and, and they, they go against God. And yes, there's some good judges and there's some bad judges and there's some good kings and there's some bad kings. But what happens is it's a downward spiral. And in the midst of all that, God has established a standard and the people can't live up to it. And God gives them reminders, you need me For everything from the inside out. I've got to change your heart. And I will remind you that a sacrifice is needed so you can be delivered. And God gives us these reminders and he gives us these promises during this entire time frame with Israel. And he says, someone needs to come And turn things upside down. And sometimes the promise is about God coming. And sometimes it's about a human king coming. And you're going like, hello? How do you do that one? Ah, it's coming. Do you see? And during that entire period, people are going their own way. And everything's winding down. And this nation, which was supposed to be a light to the world, they couldn't do it. And they go into exile. 
And eventually they come back. And before they go into exile, one of the prophets by the name of Isaiah, I love the book of Isaiah, don't you? He has a whole series of promises and prophecies saying, one is coming, one is coming. The government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to be the mighty God. He's going to be the wonderful counselor. We need the right kind of king. All these promises. And then along with that, one's coming who's going to suffer and, and die for the nation. You're going to like, like, is it a king coming or a sufferer coming? Like, wh- what? And you have these promises running, do you see? The nation comes back after exile. It's a very hard time, especially under the Greeks. And finally, they rebel under Judas Maccabeus. They set up the Hasmonean age. And you're thinking, finally, we're going to have the right kind of king. And you know what they find? Those kings, ultimately, although they're Jewish, end up becoming just like their Greek overlords. And the nation begins to spin again. And then Rome comes in and says, we'll run this thing. And Rome takes over with the coming of Pompeii. And the nation is left thinking. And and then they appoint guys like Herod the Great. Like, how good did that one go? And the nation is wondering, what will God do? We just spiral We can't do it. And and different groups rise up. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community. It's a group that's kind of come out and said, well, we'll be this perfect group out here. And, and, And maybe all those promises will come through us. And they too go by the wayside. But there is this expectation in this time period between the Old and the New Testament, as you come into the first century, all kinds of Jewish literature being written saying, God, come, 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 please. We can't stand this anymore. And they're thinking the big problem is the Romans. But that's not, never been the biggest problem. You know what the biggest problem is? My heart. I'm a sinner. And they're calling for this. And God, at just the right time, is going to do this. Do you see? In the fullness of time, God said, it's now. Jesus Christ comes. This is what the text says. So in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time has come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Who did he send? Send an angel. Find another man. No. God had to send his son. Because the mission that he was going to be on required that he be deity. But it also required that he was full humanity. 
And God and his great love, God the Father and his great love for humanity, who is just spiraling out of control, can never find it any other way. God sends his son. And his son, we know from other texts in Scripture, doesn't go like, really? Like, I have to do this? No. His son willingly comes. Born of a woman, born under the law. He became human. Say, Finkbinder, explain that one to me. Explain how you can have an individual who is both God and man 100% at the same time. I can't fully explain it to you, but I don't have to. I just have to believe it. There's a lot of things I can't explain. It doesn't change the fact that they are. Do you understand quantum physics? I sure don't. Jesus Christ became one of us. Paul says it in Philippians. He says, holding on to all the rights and privileges. He was deity of deity. Jesus didn't say, hey, I don't want to be in this subordinate role and have to do that. No, no. Jesus willingly gave that up. And the Bible says he was willing to become one of us. He was willing to humble himself. Hebrews tells us, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, the Bible tells us Jesus had to become a man because he had to represent us. One would ultimately have to die on the cross who was one of us, but for it to really take and happen, he had to be God too. There was no other way with all those prophecies in the Old Testament. God is coming. A human king is coming. Uh, Yes. Yes. The God-man comes. And he is willing to step down and to become one of us. It always amazes me that Jesus needed his diaper changed. I mean, really. Jesus had to be fed. It wasn't like when he was three months old, he said, I'll take that spoon, thank you. Do you see? I mean, you would come into our world with all of its problems, and you would be weak and humble and dependent. Yeah. You become one of us. I don't understand it. Remember years ago, I read a, an article by Max Lucado where he, he said, 24 questions I want to ask Mary. And I don't remember what they all are now, but it's, it's a priceless list. You know, did you ever catch Jesus looking at the stars that he had created and trying to count them? You know, it's things like that. I just, clever things. I, I don't know what happened and what didn't happen. But, but, but the point is he became one of us, folks. I, I don't understand that. I, I just, when, when people tell you, hey, I, I, God doesn't really love me. How can they possibly say that in light of Christmas? He 
became one of us with all of the weaknesses that entail. Now, where he was different than us is he never sinned, which is unbelievable, isn't it? How would you like to be one of Jesus' half-brothers growing up in that home? You know what I mean? You're talking about sibling rivalry. Like every time something happens, it's like, well, Jesus said this. Well, you know he's always going to be correct, right? Like you don't have a chance in that home. I mean, it's just it's all kinds of challenges there for those poor, poor other siblings. But he, he lived a sinless life. He grew, the Bible tells us, and matured and all those things. But there was never sin. There was always exactly what he should do. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law. He was the perfect Jewish young man. You read that in the book of Luke where the parents did everything they were supposed to do with him. They circumcised him and they came to the temple for purification. And when he was 12, they came for Passover. It's everywhere. And Jesus was a Jew because Abraham's blessing for the world must come through his seed. Do you see? It couldn't come through any other seed. It had to come from Abraham. He had to be a Jew. And we find out from David, it had to be from David's line in particular. And, and so all of these promises and pictures, they culminate right at Christmas, folks. What's amazing to me is the law he was under is the law he created. The humanity he took on was the humanity he created. Yeah, it's, just, it's mind-boggling. And through his public ministry, what he kept telling people again and again was, I am the Lord of all this, for instance, like the Sabbath. Religious, religious leaders kept saying to themselves, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He can kind of come in and say, no, no, that law really means this and you need to do it this way. Jesus, when people tell me, when people tell me, look, I know Jesus existed, but um, he wasn't God, but he was like, he was really a really good teacher who taught about love and blah, blah, blah. That is never an option, folks. Do you realize that? Never an option. If he was not the God-man Messiah, he was the most egotistical person that ever lived. Because he kept saying, it's me. It's about me. It's about... Only God can say that, folks. See, the option of, oh, he was a nice teacher, but he wasn't God. He wasn't the Messiah. That's not an option on your plate. He was either a nutcase, a liar, something. Or he was the Lord of Lords. And it is this. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? Why go through all of that? Look at what it says. To redeem those who were under the law. Folks, you and I were here. 
we were under a system, whether it was the Jewish law or whatever law you came up with, we were under a system which at the end of the day could only condemn us. It could not, never ultimately deliver us or empower us. Whatever system it is, you say, well, I, I didn't grow up around Christianity. You have a system and you failed it too. And Jesus looks at humanity as a whole, specifically those Jews that are under the law, and he says, look, you guys are under this, and you can't do it correctly. You fail at it all the time. You know what you need? You need somebody to redeem you. That particular word, redeem, is used one other time in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. And the Bible tells us Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus Christ looked at Doug Finkbeiner, who was gone his own way, doing his own thing, pretty nice to people on the whole, but at the end of the day, life was about him. He couldn't even keep up with his own standards, for goodness sakes. And Jesus said, Doug, you're under a curse. You're under judgment. There's no hope. You can't work your way out. You're t- it's impossible. Let me take that entire curse and judgment upon myself so that I can bring you over here And you can be bought out of that. And you can be secure in me. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father, chose to redeem me by taking my place and taking all of the hell and judgment and wrath of God upon himself. So I could be free. Isn't that amazing? He he says, but I'm not done yet. He came to redeem those that were under the law. Why? Why? Why does he say? In order that we could receive the adoption of sons. I mean, he doesn't say, okay, Finkbinder, you're in. But man, you get like the lowest place in this kingdom. Like whatever. Just, you should be happy just cleaning toilets for the rest of eternity. And actually, that would be fine. No, no. He says, you're my son. You are my heir. All of the blessings of eternity that I have designed for humanity be experienced now by my people as my sons and daughters. You're free, but you're not. You're free to be mine forever. But he says it's not just that. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 6. Because you are his sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Do you know, 
We have several in our church that have adopted children. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful gift. Two of my sisters are adopted. We uh, lived in Brazil for a couple years. Uh, My mom and dad were burdened to adopt some Brazilian children, and they did. And my, my one sister was almost dead when they adopted her. She was 13 months old, couldn't sit, couldn't, couldn't sit from anything. Bloated stomach. I, I still remember when, she, when they first brought her home. I felt like, I, I was a teenager. I hate to tell you this. I shouldn't say anything. But I, I said like, what? Why did you pick her? And that's awful. I'm just telling you. I, just, I was 12. What can I tell you? I don't know what to say. I, it's bad. It's really bad. Um... My parents saw me beyond all of that. And Sherry and Jody were brought into our home. They became my sisters. And the sweet part is the first time they looked at my parents and they said, Mommy and Daddy. Because they were legally Finkbiners now, do you know? But now they felt it from the inside out so that he would say, Mommy and Daddy. And Paul tells us in Galatians 4, you have not only been made sons and daughters, but the Spirit has been given to you so that from the inside out, all you can do when you look at God is say, Abba Father, you're mine. Wow. And that's what God did in the fullness of time. We were going our own way. God sent, and the son was willing, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive The adoption of sons. And he has given us of his spirit. So that from the inside out, we cry out, Abba, Father. That's what Christmas is all about. He was born to die. I want to read just a short clip, if I could, for you. In closing, from Tim Keller, comes out of this book, um, Encounter, Encounters with Jesus, that we've been working on. And he tells the story of Dorothy Sayers. Let me just read it to you. Sayers was one of the first women to go to Oxford, and she was a writer of detective fiction. She wrote a series of great stories and novels called the Lord Peter Whimsy Stories. Lord Peter was an aristocratic detective, single and alone. And in the middle of the series, a tall, not particularly attractive woman named Harriet Vane appears in the stories. Harriet is one of the first women that went to Oxford within the story itself. Sound familiar? And she is a writer of detective fictions. You're going like, huh. She and Peter fall in love, get married, and solve mysteries together. 
What's going on there, Keller says. Some people have speculated that Dorothy Sayers looked into the world she created and into the character she created and saw his pain, saw his loneliness, fell in love with him, and wrote herself into the story just to save him. God, you see, has done quite the same thing. God looked into our world, the world that he had made, and saw us destroying ourselves in the world by turning away from him and going our own way. It filled his heart with pain. He loved us. He saw us struggling to extricate ourselves from the traps and misery that we created for ourselves. And he wrote himself in. Jesus Christ, the God-man, born in a manger, born to die on a cross for us. Behold who Jesus is, how he loves you, and how he came to put the world right. I was telling Joe, right after we were singing those songs, man, which, oh, so touching, that was great. I elbowed him and I said, Joe, don't you wish everybody believed us? He said, yeah, man, I do. It breaks my heart that people would reject that story. I pray this will be the day you embrace it. And if you embrace it, it should change the way you live. Father, not only at Christmas time, but throughout the entire year, may we be overwhelmed with the wonder of Christmas, the perfect timing in which you sent forth your Son. May that change us, the way we relate to you, the way we relate to one another, our passion to get the message out to all around us who desperately need to hear the wonders of the gospel. Father, thank you for sending the Son. Jesus, thank you for being willing to be written into our story so that we could become part of yours. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.